Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On. I am your host, Daniel Paris. I'm delighted to have as my return guest, Martin Fridson. Uh, Martin is the uh, founder and CEO of the Forbes Fridson uh, Income Securities Investor Newsletter. He is a columnist for Forbes, and he is the chief investment officer of Lehman Livian Fridson Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor. In addition to that, he's the author of really of numerous books and, and writings, but the one we're going to be discussing today is a 1993, that is 30 years ago, book that he published called Investment Illusions, A Savvy Wall Street Pro Explodes Popular Misconceptions About the Markets. It's published by Wiley in 1993. It was really kind of a how-to uh, list of, of avoiding pitfalls in the market at the time. And uh, it struck me and, and Marty that uh, 30 years later, nearly 30 years later, it was an excellent time to revisit uh, those pitfalls, see what has stayed the same, what has changed, what's uh, gotten better, what's gotten worse, and and what uh, uh, options are for investors as they try to navigate a very tricky investment environment. Uh, Marty, thank you so much for agreeing to be back on the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Good to see you again. You started really, it's a really fascinating book. And, and uh, again, I encourage listeners to either find it in the library if you can't find a copy, but it is available in paperback on the various platforms for purchase. I don't think it'll generate much in the way of, of uh, royalties these days uh, for you, but it, it is available if you search uh, hard enough. And uh, I was able to procure a copy. The book really is broken into a number of strategies that to some extent would be useful still today, at least as categories of issues that investors should should look at and, and consider carefully before proceeding. Uh, the first section is called uh, what I call, you know, it's really strategies, investment strategies, very popular kind of high volume strategies in the stock market or the bond market that look good at first glance and less so upon closer examination. And in 1993, there were a number of them. You may want to discuss them. And in 2022, there are a number of them and, and we may want to discuss them as well. How, how, how would you compare the leading strategies of the day then with the, the, the most, the, I won't call them leading, but maybe the loudest strategies uh, today? <laughs> Well, I think some uh, some of it has remained the same. Uh, the market is a lot different, though. I mean, going back through the book in preparation for the show, I was struck by how much the universe of stocks uh, looks different. I mean, they, the uh, technology sector was certainly there, but it's much more prominent. I mean, if you watch CNBC today, you'll hear the conversation very much dominated by the so-called FANG stocks. Uh, there's discussion of, well, maybe we should be looking at banks right now or what, what are, what, what's the right thing to be doing about the energy stocks given the volatility in oil price. But that covers most of it. I mean, the discussion is very concentrated. So whereas in the past, um, a wider variety of uh, basic industry companies and companies that I guess by today's standards would be considered low tech, but were computer manufacturers and uh, so on in, in those days uh, were um, uh, much more prominent. So uh, the, yeah, I think that's a, a big change in it, but, um, I, but I think some of the basic ideas are still there. Um, you know, the idea for one thing, uh, uh, contrarianism and, you know, the idea that, uh, it's just a matter of buying things that are out of favor. Uh, they're bound to uh, come back. And, you know, that's a perennial idea. It's been around longer. You know, it certainly was around long before 1993 when I wrote about it. And it's always been a um, simplistic idea. It sometimes works out that way. But you can also point to examples of companies that kept going down. Um, you know, there, there's always a story, well, you know, the market has overreacted. Uh, sometimes it turns out that the market is on the right track and conditions continue to worsen. So a uh, simplistic look at where it was, where it is now, is, uh, is certainly no uh, surefire formula. 
So one of the things that struck me in your strategies that were notable then, but but pose certain risks, is they were often really linked, as as you just said, with companies, real economy companies, not necessarily just the the tech names. But you had uh, companies that were pursuing a particular modernization strategy. There were uh, strategies around management change or business momentum, particular business strategies, all of which would make sense in a dynamic economy. What struck me, and I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about this, thirty years later. With the advent, dissemination, and complete domination of factor investing, the companies themselves often appear to have been removed from the equation. Now, the fangs are so successful and so large that they are the companies and we become obsessed with them. But below the level of the fangs and maybe some thematic investing like IPOs or biotechs, which are often the same thing, or energy is a thematic, the at least in the in the trenches, if you look at products and uh, investment products, ETFs, and so forth, it seems to be this whole realm of particular strategies has has transferred from the real economy to the factor economy. Now, factors of the stock market uh, are were created before the 1990s, but really became uh, dominant as as uh, machines of ETFs, the the logic behind ETFs and various uh, investment strategies in the last couple of decades, they weren't really predominant. I don't believe, correct me, by the 1990s, FAM in French uh, is 1992, but I don't think it had made it all the way into the uh, into the academy uh, from the academy to uh, to Wall Street in one short year. So I, I I was struck by that. I don't know if you've you've thought about that the difference between factor investing as opposed to business strategy investing uh, as one of a key difference. The, uh, we currently have. Yeah, uh, it, absolutely. It's been a uh, an innovation. I remember in my, one of my other roles as book review editor for the Financial Analyst Journal, uh, the uh, one of my colleagues at Merrill Lynch, where I was working at the time, uh, came out with a book, uh, Richard Bernstein, about factor investing. It was one of the probably, if not the first book on the subject. And it was a new idea at the time. It's become very prominent. Um, you mentioned ETFs, which were not really around, um, at least as I, I think the proper definition of them. That, you know, there were always closed-end funds that traded on exchanges, but the ETFs were really a uh, sort of an offshoot of the index funds. And once they had that idea out there, they said, well, we can take a slice of the market or um, the uh, you can get exposure to this or that theme through these uh, new types of instruments. And you're right, it has become uh, a very big part of things. I think a lot of um, investment advisors uh, prefer that kind of approach. I mean, not all of them are you know, what we used to call stock jockeys. Uh, they're very uh, concerned about um, doing well for their clients, but don't see themselves as stock pickers and say, well, there are ways we can play on the certain themes that we think we have some sense of as investment advisors. So uh, there, there's certainly more choice uh, for investors as how to go about it. And uh, the old-fashioned way of uh, taking apart a company, um, I think, uh, really uh, uh, brought into, uh, not into fashion exactly, but brought to a, uh, uh, a high level of expertise by uh, Graham and Dodd's classic book in 1934. And I think for many years after, that remained uh, not only a widely used book, as it does to this day, but also... Uh, characterize the style of investment management. Uh, and I think you're quite correct that it has at least been supplemented by an entirely different approach. Supplemented, in some cases, pushed pushed yeah, to, yeah, the, to the background. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I run a pretty old-fashioned portfolio, but I'm subject to newfangled measurement techniques, including uh, dramatic, very detailed uh, factor analysis of our strategies. And many of these factors I've never even heard of. The one I like the most for my portfolio is the EPS Torpedo. I have no clue what it is, but it's on the list. I think there were 37 factors that uh, the portfolio, my the quantitative support team on for my firm applies to all portfolios, old fashioned or new, n- new economy. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, one quarter I'm ahead of the EPS torpedo, another quarter I'm behind. But uh, yeah, it's a very, very different world. I try to keep up with the sales and profits of my businesses. I should be keeping up with the torpedoes. Uh, uh, as far as I know, none of the companies we own make torpedoes, but that's, that's a separate, <laughs> separate discussion. The second really interesting uh, area that you, I think there's more continuity than, than discontinuity. The second kind of area of problems or pitfalls or, or uh, things that investors need to be wary of, not wary of, but, but just cautious about and, and thoughtful about in the 1990s was uh, statistics uh, of the market, forecasting uh, of companies, the company's numbers themselves. I have in my note here a numbers racket. Uh, a critic could say, well, that really hasn't changed much, uh, that it's still a numbers racket. I don't think that's fair. I think the numbers actually have gotten a lot better, but there's still plenty of ways to trip up with either market statistics, company reporting, uh, and forecasting. How, how, how do you see the difference between how companies report now? Much more regulation now than there was in 1993 after the internet bubble and then the, uh, the financial crisis. But how, do you, how would you compare the, uh, the, the numbers racket then and now? Yeah, it's a great topic and uh, it's by itself could certainly be uh, well, well over an hour uh, podcast. But uh, to hit a few of the highlights, I would say that the big change that's come about is the uh, Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002, uh, a little more than a decade after the book came out, because um, what that did, uh, I didn't appreciate it at first when I first saw the legislation that was a response to the the dot-com bust uh, and uh, some of the very egregious financial reporting frauds that occurred in that period. You know, Enron, probably the most famous of them, but uh, a number around the same time, including Health South and WorldCom and, and others. And uh, the legislation had a very important feature, which was that it required the CEO of the company to sign off on the financials. And again, not being a lawyer, I didn't immediately appreciate the significance of that. But what it meant was that it would uh, no longer be possible for the CEO to say, oh, well, it was these underlings of mine, and too bad that they'll be going to prison. But uh, uh, I just relied on them, and uh, I, you can't blame me if there was uh, fraudulent financial reporting. When the likelihood was that it, the impetus for that fraud was coming from the top, uh, but I, I think it was grossly unjust that the uh, top person. Uh, evaded responsibility successfully. And that's um, no longer true. There are some ways that they've managed to get around this, but um, I have a book on financial statement analysis and uh, the uh, what has kept it popular through what will soon be the fifth edition is the uh, documentation discussion and the ways that I, I show that some of these frauds were detected ahead of time. Um, but the great case studies, at least for the U.S., all antedated uh, 2002. At least they, they had their beginnings prior to 2002. Uh, there's lots of this still going on outside the U.S., uh, great opportunities for short sellers and those kinds of situations. But the Sarbanes-Oxley uh, made a, a, a huge difference. Um, we, we, you know, I would say it hasn't entirely eliminated uh, criminal uh, violations, but now we're really dealing more with um, the uh, trickery that goes on that's within the bounds of the law. It's misleading. It's unfortunate that investors can be deceived by this, but uh, we have to understand that the problem with financial reporting is we have a uh, financial reporting system uh which leads to the generally accepted accounting principles or GAAP, which is designed for 19th century manufacturing companies. The uh, Baruch Lev of uh, NYU Stern School has shown that um, over time, and certainly in the years since Investment Illusions came out, the relationship between GAAP earnings and stock prices has steadily diminished. Why is that? Well, uh, If you are a company that, for example, 
builds value by uh, gathering subscribers who are going to, on average, remain on your system, whatever it is, for a predictable number of years and therefore generate a predictable amount of revenue, uh, usually at no incremental cost to the company. So that revenue is going to go straight to the bottom line and the market can see that. But according to Gap, the company is losing money while it's building tremendous wealth. Why is that? Well, because the marketing and R&D expense or costs are all expensed immediately. Now, the definition of an asset in your basic accounting course is an investment that provides a, uh, a, a continuing value. Well, that's equally true for the expense that you put into building up, for example, a drug that you have a patent on and will uh, be worth billions. But all of the R&D that went into that has been written off in the year that occurred. Whereas a plant to manufacture widgets that is capitalized, meaning that the cost of it is recognized over the life of that plant, which makes a lot of sense. But that same principle is not applied to what are the assets of many, many companies, including some of the most valuable companies uh, that, you know, when they finally turn the corner and start showing a uh, gap profit, everyone says, oh, well, this is a dramatic difference. It's really uh, just a minor difference at that point. So we have, I've run into these issues of, of GDP calculation on prior shows where it was also a function of the 1930s and really doesn't describe the service economy. It was a quick fix for the Roosevelt administration trying to figure out, hey, what can we do? There's a crisis, very few tools, and yet it dominates the narrative, the political discourse and the financial discourse today. Same with earnings, as you point out, gap earnings. The alternate ways of showing a company's uh, non-GAAP uh, uh, viability, however, creates, uh, I think, a new new forms of number rackets that people have to be at least aware of. Non-GAAP earnings is accepted, but it's a, a bit of a wild west. Anyone yeah. can define what their non-GAAP earnings are. So, you know, GAAP also doesn't deal well with ESG investing and uh, depreciation charges for against the environment really aren't included in GAAP. If you charge all the companies for their environmental degradation, company balance sheets and income statements would look. So the, the, the system isn't very good. We can agree on that. Unfortunately, all the alternatives to the system, there is no single alternative to the system and the existing alternatives may not be a whole lot better. As I said, non-GAAP earnings are anything goes. Yeah, well, well, uh, it, Baruch Lev, who I mentioned a moment ago, has advocated you know, standardization of those adjusted non-GAAP earnings so that at least within a definable industry, you'd be comparing one company to another on a similar basis rather than saying, they can report whatever they want uh, as long as they make clear that those are the non-GAAP numbers. They have to give greater prominence to the GAAP numbers, but uh, they're on their own as far as how they define those. So you, you don't have the um, comparability, which is a very basic principle in securities analysis at companies that are in the same industry. Uh, you have some of the same metrics and can form some uh, reasonable judgments about their comparative values. Well, hopefully we'll get to some sort of uh, standards-based new gap, neo-gap, 21st century gap uh, reporting. I also, I think that from a, a numbers racket perspective, there are interesting dynamics with our earnings revisions and earnings beats and companies taking consensus. I don't know whether this math existed in the 1990s, but this notion of consensus, which is managed both by the sell side and by the company, so that beats are generated very consistently. Yeah, I'm glad you're right. Yeah, it's that that definitely qualifies as a racket. I mean, I, I set the target and then I beat it and everyone is supposed to get all excited about it. I think to an extent the market sees through it, but uh, uh, the, the, you know, there's certainly uh, in the media and uh, among the brokerage firms are probably making a lot about it. And, and uh you know, I can remember working on Wall Street. I worked at several different firms, uh, analysts patting themselves on the back for, you know, having nailed the earnings estimate after the guidance <laughs> put you into a really narrow, uh, uh, you know, uh, range. And uh, furthermore, the companies have uh, tremendous latitude 
to manage those earnings. And a lot of them are quite open about it uh, and just say, yes, everybody manages their earnings. So it's very different. You know, if you go into your um, local uh, coffee shop, you say, oh, well, whether it's profitable or not is pretty clear. They have so much cost of uh, the food and um, paper cups or whatever else they're using and and, and so on. Uh, they have their labor costs and, um, uh, you know, they, they, if they're renting their property, they're uh, paying that and, and they're paying their workers and then they're selling it. And you do a little bit of arithmetic and that's how much money they made this month or quarter or year. Uh, that's not those those numbers that you're seeing from these uh, big uh, companies listed on the stock exchange have something to do with that. You can get a little close to it by looking at the cash flow numbers, but they have the latitude to say we're going to uh, recognize losses that have accumulated in this quarter so that we don't have too hard a number to beat next year in the same quarter. Uh, they can uh, cut back on uh, discretionary expenditures such as uh, uh, um, advertising uh, and uh, R&D uh, for a quarter to make the numbers. They can make an acquisition late in the quarter and have the whole quarter's revenue counted for that quarter, for that acquisition. There's so many gimmicks out there um, and uh, you know that so you ha you have to realize that these are, in a large sense, very artificial kinds of numbers that are generated to uh, produce what doesn't exist in reality, which is a nice smooth earnings path, and the market rewards that, but it's not a reflection of the underlying reality. My favorite is selling a building at the end of the quarter and then leasing it back for a nice a tidy profit. The real estate investment trusts love to be on the other side of that equation. They'll happily take the building off your hand and lease it back to you. You you get to book a profit on the building. So I, it does raise the issue about the prospect of or the utility of non-quarterly reporting. This is a topic for another show. We'll have you back for this. But uh, I, as a uh, my particular style of investing does involve longer investment periods and, and business periods. And so, you know, annual reporting would not bother me in the least. And of course, nobody is in my camp in regard to that. But in terms of this frequency of reporting for long duration assets, there's a mismatch there. The reporting would be better to be a little bit more aligned with the duration of that. And when I'm not talking about financial duration, I'm talking about machinery and and long business cycles and and brands that are around for for decades. And so maybe that's a, a topic for another day. But uh, quarterly reporting, I don't know that it does us too many too many favors. Yeah, and I mentioned in the book that uh, Paul Tsongas, the uh, presidential candidate, actually made this a bit of an issue in his uh, campaign. And uh, so it's, it's not a new topic. Uh, it's uh, hard to change anything that's in place. And when, particularly when you have a, an infrastructure built up around this, I mean, these quarterly earnings calls are a, a huge ritual uh, there. Uh, you know, if it's something that can generate more transactions, that's good for Wall Street. I, I don't want to sound, you know, and be too harsh about it, but uh, they're, they're, you know, there are interest groups built into the system that we have. And uh, so that uh, automatically creates a, a great deal of inertia. So let's move on to some more clearly, uh, at the time, dangerous now, probably less so. But you, you have a whole section on kind of bad companies, bad business practices, uh, bad brokerage practices, and boiler rooms come to mind. Maybe do you want to define a boiler? I don't know that boiler rooms exist anymore, but I think we have some modern. We we do have some modern variants, which we'll get to in a moment. Highly <laughs> controversial, very topical as of literally last twelve months. But describe a boiler room so that people can understand what the latter day version uh, is being compared against. Uh, yeah, the uh, classic boiler room was. Uh, um, a company that uh, brokerage firm that would uh, very aggressively cold call investors, uh, lure them in with um, 
investment recommendations. There's actually a film uh, called Boiler Room that portrays this very well. So I definitely recommend it uh, for any who are interested to uh, get a better understanding of it. But, you know, aggressively cold calling saying we're recommending this stock. These were often um, penny stocks that they uh, the boiler uh, shop could more uh, effectively control uh, the, the price of and the, as portrayed in the film, run up the stock price, then you know, pull the plug, uh, leaving uh, everyone else with a, uh, uh, you know, an empty bag, you know, holding the bag as uh, the, the story goes. And um, and uh, they uh, were um, not you know, providing any real information, uh, but sort of um, playing on people's uh, uh, naivety really about it and saying, well, here are some people I, I see the stock is running up. I'd better get in, you know, playing on all of the human weaknesses um, and uh, just, uh, you know, very uh, uh, fly by night kinds of operations. It, and one of the, the real problems was with them was that, uh, if they got shut down because of abusive uh, tactics, it was easy for them to reopen with more or less the same cast of characters under a new name, uh, maybe at a, a different location. But uh, it was very hard to uh, to control them. And and again, the descript the term boiler room comes from the fact that the the fly by nature, uh, fly by night nature of their business and their low capital overhead, yeah. they might be in the basement somewhere by <laughs> the boiler right. room. You set up a, a phone bank uh, and off you go, and some card tables and folding chairs, uh, and you're by the boiler room and you don't pay much in rent. So I believe that's the the origin of the of the title. Yeah. Yeah. So we we have we gotten away from well you know we've gotten away from smaller brokerages I I don't compared to the 1990s uh, I think there are, uh, the brokerage industry has consolidated dramatically uh, there are certainly boiler room like RIAs out there I imagine but in terms of broker dealers I, I don't correct me if I'm wrong they're far fewer than there used to be and and so the classic broker dealer that has inventory of a penny stock to sell is uh, maybe harder to come by, but we do seem to have 30 years later, a new version, which is uh, front and center in the media right now through uh, Wall Street Bets and Reddit. We have these online forums, which seem to share many of the characteristics of a a boiler room. That's a controversial statement, but but probably true. Yeah, I think it's similar in the sense that it's not... um, run so much by the brokerage firm itself. I mean, you know, there are criticisms of some of the uh, uh, firms uh, you've mentioned. I think particularly the gamification of investing um, has, I think, gotten some justified criticism. There are defenders of this and uh, those who say it's not so much of a problem. But I think it, uh, the idea of, you know, turning it almost into a video game, and there are some visuals uh, involved, and um, the but you know it's not so much a broker hounding you to buy a stock or you know, creating this uh, a trail of the stock being run up artificially and then inducing you to get in uh, at at a higher price, but it's the online community. Uh, this is something that has given rise to, you know, been given rise with the social networks, which really didn't exist, certainly at the time that investment illusions came out. Um, you see social networks operating in a lot of other ways, some positive, some, uh, I think, very uh, worrisome. But in the investment business, it's a community going around and, uh, and people reinforcing one another. So the um, uh, what I hope will turn out to be the worst episode of it, but that remains to be seen, was that when uh, sports shut down because of the uh, pandemic in 2020, you had a lot of uh, online sports bettors who now had little to do, and suddenly they turned into day traders. And uh, when they saw a uh, big short position against GameStop, uh, which was 
a company they liked because of their uh, involvement probably of a lot of those same people in video games. Uh, they said, we're going to show them and uh, we're going to run up the stock and really stick it to that short seller. And that is, I can guarantee you, that's not something short sellers were fearful of prior to 2020. If there were people who disagreed, fine, they could trade. They weren't going to uh, really clobber the uh, short sellers in the way that happened in the case of GameStop as you know the most prominent example in it. So that that is a very dramatic change. And again, it remains to be seen uh, how that, uh, you know, to the, the extent that that will continue, the extent it may have been a function of uh, people not having to go into work, not having a lot to do and having these stimulus payments from the government. Uh, but uh, I think to, to some extent, at least the um, uh, social networks are going to continue to be a significant force in the retail market. You know, I wonder, and and I say this with a source of alarm or concern that's become politicized. That not wasn't just the gamification, but it by some of the participants in this, it's the democratization of of investing, which has also advanced in the last thirty years. So, thirty years ago, a boiler room was a, a kind of a fraudulent activity, but it wasn't highly political. Now, uh, it this uh, the the recent conflict is both possibly fraudulent, highly speculative, et cetera, but it's become highly, highly political, which is going to make it a more significant phenomenon rather than a less significant ph- phenomenon and and probably mm-hmm. harder to to deal with uh, going forward. So uh, stay stay tuned on, on the future of... What other area that you write about, and it kind of bleeds into it because it's part of modern media and social networks, you have a nice chapter on the pitfalls, the virtues and pitfalls of, of the media, of journalists, of newsletter writers. Now, we both have to be careful about this because we both, <laughs> we both write. I mean, we both are participants in the market, but we, we pride ourselves on our writing. We have to deal with the rating companies. Uh, and there's a lot of verbiage out there in the 1990s. There's a lot of verbiage out there about investments uh, now. And the, the Reddit community's uh, bulletin boards seem to be, have become part of that. But otherwise, I think you know, the, the newspaper and magazine writing from, and newsletter writing, traditional newsletter writing from the 1920s and 30s and aughts up for the last century, that's really changed. They were, I think, you know, uh, and, and you are an author of a newsletter, so I have to be very careful, but yeah. the, of a traditional newsletter, but that, that, uh, that has been supplanted to some degree by the internet and by internet communications. And that many of the storied journals, including Forbes, with all due respect and fortune, and, and just aren't what they aren't what they were in terms of their share of mind space. So as a participant, as a direct participant in the communication channel over the last 30 years, how, how would you compare what was then and what is now? Well, I think your point is very well taken. Uh, we see this in media in general, even outside of uh, financial journalism. Uh, I think that the, um, the continuing participants of the sort of well-known names of the past have focused increasingly on uh, personal investing, you know, stock stories. Um, I think they've somewhat narrowed their range because that's where the action is. And if they're going to generate subscribers, that's uh, where they'll get them. I, I don't know that that's helpful, you know, having more uh, pounding of the same stocks Uh, I don't know if that's adding more value as opposed to other kinds of reporting that may uh, offer some insights and perspective on things. Now, that isn't gone entirely, but I think the pressure has been on to say, do you have a hot stock story today? Um, The, uh, you know, you mentioned several points. Let me just hit on a few uh, highlights on this. The the problem with newsletters, and I'll say that I... uh, avoid doing is, uh, you know, focusing uh, very highly on market timing, saying, get out of the market, get into the market, get out, which is clearly going to be a losing strategy. Nobody genuinely has amassed a long-term record of successfully calling tops and bottoms in the market. Uh, What they have done is uh, had one remarkable success and you know, dined out on that for the next uh, 20 years. Um, We've had some notable examples of newsletter writers um, or 
or others um, uh, pundits. Um, and you know, the, the the question is, you know, just uh, what you're talking about statistics earlier on. Um, you know, one right call is not proof of, uh, you know, being able to uh, analyze or. Uh, call tops and bottoms better than anyone else. But if you are in the right place at the right time, uh, you, you get a lot of publicity. And the uh, media, I'm sad to say, often uh, plays along with that and is looking for heroes, uh, looking for uh, people who can come on, be interviewed uh, with them and generate readership. And by the way, one of the uh, downsides of the way jan- journalism has been transformed is that you used to be able to say, okay, uh, there appears to be a pickup in our newsstand sales because we ran this particular kind of story. Um, but it was pretty vague, uh, you know, hard to quantify. Now you know exactly. Um, you know how many hits the story got. And I think that has a very unfortunate effect because it encourages the journalists uh, who understandably want to advance their careers to hit the hot buttons and uh, write stories that are going to uh, generate that kind of excitement and generate a lot of hits. So it's very measurable. And uh, I I don't think this has on the whole been a positive uh, influence on uh, the quality. Now, I I don't at all want to run down journalists. They do have um, a characteristic that some of the sketchier companies out there or sketchier executives don't like, which is that they follow the principle, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, That means that if it's a scandal, if it's bad news, that's going to get more prominence. And that actually has a very positive uh, role in the financial markets because the bad stuff needs to get uh, uh, to be brought out. Um, you know, so it's not easy to do. Uh, I recently booked, uh, read a book that I would recommend, uh, Billion Dollar Loser, about WeWork. And I was following that story, as I'm sure many of you listening were. But, um, and I re- recognize in the book uh, some of the stories that came out. Uh, some of the negative press about that company and about its CEO, Adam Newman. But uh, I, I think even doing your best to follow it, there was important news that came along that somehow escaped me. And uh, so the more, the the better. I, I think it's uh, also responsibility of the consumers, you know, the investors to uh, be conscientious about following what's coming on. And, uh, uh, but um you know, so the journalists fulfill a very important function that way, even though the companies, uh, you know, cried bloody murder. One of the things I've noticed in uh, recreating the stories of the financial frauds that have come along is that predictably the CEO comes out with a flat out denial and denunciation of the uh, terrible uh, slander or libel, I guess, in the case of the media that's been created, uh, threatening to retaliate against that. Um, and by the way, uh, uh, very distressingly, um, uh, the uh, you know they, they don't always have um, uh, support. Uh, the media, you know, the, the, those who are reporting don't always get the support that they ought to have uh, if they're. You know, really trying to do their uh, their job. Uh, investors who uh, unfortunately are holding that stock uh, join in in that criticism, um, and uh, and of course analysts uh, often uh, will come out and say, "Oh, this is totally unfounded. This is going to be a one day story," and ignore that uh, instead of digging into it and saying, "Well, gee, uh, maybe they're onto something," and. Uh, even though I have a buy recommendation and I've been enthusiastic about the stock, isn't it my duty as a professional to take that criticism seriously rather than being so uh, wedded to my position that I just dismiss it out of hand and feel uh, that I have to be the defender of the company? That's the last thing you should want an analyst to do, to be a, a defender of a company. 
Also a topic, maybe an entire topic for uh, another episode involving short selling and the role that they play in the proper functioning of a market. It's nice to think that everything always goes uh, up and to the right, but uh, the reality is the short sellers and the public, the pu- uh, publishing short sellers do play a critical role and underappreciate. They're easy to vilify, but they actually do play an incredibly important role uh, in the proper functioning of, of capital markets. Yeah. Uh, so we need to, but let, let's let's kind of finish up with the uh, uh, what the last chapter, which involved highlighting at the time in 1993 various investment strategies. Not the way we're talking about in the in the beginning, fangs or momentum or or, or factor, but academic models, special situations, uh, tax. I have a big issue with investors who subordinate investment policy to tax policy, but that's my issue. International. And then you end on collectibles, beanie, uh, 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 collectibles of the time. Collectibles have changed. I think we call them NFTs now. At the time, they were a little bit different. But you, you do point out that each of these uh, potentially faddish strategies does does come with risks. Has there, has there been much change there in you know the kind of special sits investing uh, from the 1990s to the present? Well, I think you hit on one of the key ones, you know, the, the NFTs uh, that have come along. Um, the, uh, I, I think the consistent theme throughout the period has been that uh, they're uh, things without any intrinsic value, um, you know, can become collectibles. And, uh, you know, it's hard. You can't fight the tape. I mean, they will uh, generate, uh, become very valuable over time, but there are risks in that. With uh, my friend Zach Bizonet wrote the book on Beanie Babies, and uh, what happened eventually is the company kind of got caught up in the idea of these as collectibles and started to try to profit on it by increasing their production, which of course killed the whole idea of the scarcity value in certain editions of the Beanie Babies, and um, we had seen that previously in. Uh, uh, sports card collecting, uh, the company started manufacturing more cards and um, you know flooding the market. And the whole idea had been that there were only you know three or four Honus Wagner cards still around, and that's what got everyone excited. But then you know, they tried to apply that to newly cre- uh, created cards. So there, Zach uh, pointed out. I first, he first came to my attention because he pointed out an artist um, uh, name I don't recall right offhand, but uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. His works were selling for $60,000 a piece, a gigantic sum, a uh, hugely uh, successful artist. And today his paintings sell for $60,000 <laughs> with, uh, you know, the multiple uh, of uh, inflation alone being probably 25 times or something, you know, in that period. So the faddishness, I think, is a key phrase that you point out. And um, I think that continues. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll see similar kind of stories in some of the NFTs that are out there now, uh, sooner or later. Yeah, and there there are uh, newfangled, and some of them may have to do with the tax rules or with uh, dividend withholding rules for international investments, the emergence of particular models, ESG uh, as a new investment model. There, there are a lot of moving parts right now. It actually is, you know, it's it's not as much an illusion. It, it is a genuine challenge. Uh, that last chapter of your book, I think that has more consistent and and stayed the same because it reflects investment choices, reasonable investment choices that you investors were faced with in the 1990s and are faced with now. And it's basically decision-making under conditions of uncertainty. And that's just as hard now as it was in the 1990s. The tools may be somewhat different, the the label's somewhat different, but the, the basic paradigm, do I do this, do I do that, seems to uh, have, have uh, remained un, unchanged. And we see, I'm asked as a investment manager by advisors and end clients all the time. Well, should I go in this direction? Should I go in that direction? The product I happen to manage only goes in one direction. So I can I can only say, well, if you want to go in this direction, that's what we have. If you want to go in a different direction, I, I, I can't help you. But the that, that challenge seems unabated from the 1990s and maybe from the 1890s and the 1790s uh, as well. Uh, let's kind of, as we move towards 45 minutes, try to pull back a little bit. There's a temptation to say plus a change, that nothing has changed over the last 30 years and that incrementally it's it's as challenging as it was. 
in the 1990s, but I, I don't know if that's the case. I have to feel that their investors are better informed now. The regulation is probably better. The tools are clearly with uh, clearly better information tools are clearly better. And so, you know, ha- how, when you're looking back on the challenge of advising clients and managing money in the 1990s and doing it now, uh, ha- have you seen improvements and, and where would they be? Well, I think, um, you know, the, the regulators have certainly uh, made a, a good effort. Uh, I think the Sarbanes-Oxley uh, came in for a lot of criticism uh, from various quarters, but uh, I think the uh, improvement in the quality of financial reporting uh, has been a plus. I think the uh, the information uh, certainly has improved. I think one um, one very positive aspect of the information is that uh, you know when I uh, started out on the Wall Street, and even as late as um, you know the 1980s, uh, it was possible for someone to be proclaimed a guru, uh, let's say a strategist at a major Wall Street firm or so on, and to say, uh, here's how it is. And there was really no practical way to challenge that view because the data was very expensive. It was not uh, really feasible to just reconstruct it. So, you know, someone at a major firm had a lot more resources available. Um now with the um, you know the internet um, and and other and entrepreneurial efforts that have made data a lot more uh, possible, um, that that really has changed, and you can uh, be in a position that again only a few people were able uh, to be in, um, at least not long before my book came out. One of the great uh, uh, moments for me are uh, a, a a real message. I was working as a Wall Street strategist myself in the particular area of uh, high yield bonds. And uh, I had a young analyst at one of the buy side firms call me up and say, you know, I, I, I reproduced your model and it was correct. And I said, Phew, <laughs> relief. But it was really a message to say now it is possible as it had not been prior to that uh, for someone who had a little bit of, you know, computer smarts, you know, more than you would need today, I think, to do it uh, and uh, reproduce the analysis. So I think it's harder for analysts to get away with uh, you know, shoddy kind of a work. So that's to a plus, you know, you know, not that you should rely entirely on analysts' uh, opinions. And again, but, these uh, are the sell-side analysts you're generally Yeah, the sell-side yeah, sell yeah. analysts. Uh, but I, I think that they can provide some useful information, some analysis that if you apply your, your, your own uh, critical faculties to, uh, can be useful. And <clears throat> I think that uh, even back then, I said that our, the principle that I, I wanted our analysts to follow was show your work, you know, show how you got to the answer. And I think that has become more the case um, than it was. You know, one time the analyst could just say, here's my top line, here's the earnings per share number, you'll just have to take it on faith. And that's, uh, that's what it's going to be. I think there is more, you know, at least um, the institutions are demanding more uh, than they did at that time. And I think everyone winds up benefiting from that. So, and I, and I think the internet, and this is just a variant of restating what you just said, the internet for all of its flaws provides greater transparency and visibility. It's more, it becomes, the information market has become more efficient. Whether the stock market is efficient, whether the capital market's efficient, will leave for another day. But the information asymmetries in the 1990s are not as great as they uh, are, are were greater in the 1990s than they are now, and someone who is inclined to look and search can get a lot of information now that they simply couldn't on advisors on strategies. It doesn't mean that they have to do their individual stock work, but the ability to understand even sites like Morningstar, and I have lots of issues with the Morningstar sites for comparing mutual funds, uh, but there's just so much more information out there that a non-professional but reasonably engaged individual can can have a lot more 
confidence on their decision making. Again, decision making under conditions of uncertainty, always hard, never going to be resolved. Uh, but it, they can have a greater sense that they, well, at least I've kicked the tires to a reasonable degree and, upon making, uh, in preparation for making a decision. Yeah. And, and the fact that it's online and in real time rather than published once a month makes a tremendous difference. Um, you know, I uh, at Merrill Lynch at one point I said, oh, well, people are asking to get our uh, reports in digital form. Could we do that <laughs> instead of mailing out a paper copy? And it was a kind of a revolutionary uh, step at the time. But uh, now we take that all for granted. Anyone who's come into the market in the last 20 years just probably assumes it was always that way. I do spend time at the local Carnegie Library here in Pittsburgh going through old hard copy of financial journals. Uh, I delight in that, but I do understand that uh, most people do not. <laughs> Marty, thank you so much for, for being a guest on the show. Any, any parting comments for investors and, and encouragement compared to what you might have said to them in 1993? Yeah, I would say that uh, yeah, they should be encouraged by the ability to gather information. At the same time, uh, they have to realize that there's no substitute for hard work on this. It's not going to uh, come easy. Uh, any of the uh, supposed formulas that are out there uh, are you know, not really uh, proven over time. Uh, and you have to have um, a control over your attitude your, and, and I think approach the market with a certain amount of humility. Uh, one real danger is overconfidence uh, having a successful pick and figuring that, oh, I've got it all figured out now and um, I can just replicate that success uh, as easily as snapping my fingers. Now, that, that's not going to happen. Uh, it's not easy. It's a competitive market. There are a lot of people out there looking for those opportunities, a lot of things that can go wrong. So uh, it, it, I think it's important uh, to keep in mind that you're uh, you can get paid uh, for doing that work, but uh, it's it's not a something for nothing kind of proposition. Well, I think a, a little uh, humility for all of us, whether investors or investment managers, is always uh, a good call. My my guest has been Martin Fridson. Martin Marty, thank you so much for being on the show. A reminder that Marty is the uh, editor and publisher, founder of Forbes Fridson. Uh, income securities investor newsletter. So please sign up for it. It's a little bit old fashioned newsletters, but uh, wor well worth the read. He's also a columnist for Forbes and he is the CIO of uh, Lehman Livian Fridson Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor. Marty, thank you uh, so much again for being on the show. My pleasure.